Hey, raise your hand. Who's glad that it's not 105 today? <laughs> Amen. Let's pray for rain. I want to see rain, not, not for me, because I have seen it, but for my children. <laughs> okay. It's been a while since we've had a We need one. I'm getting feedback here, guys. Does that help? All right. Um, these are exciting days to be part of. Don't move. Uh, these are exciting days to be part of the church here. Okay, well, we'll do the best we can with that. Uh, new people are regularly joining the church family here. We're celebrating 50 years of God's faithfulness to us. We've got some construction projects underway. A bunch of that stuff got ordered this week. And so we've got uh, fingers crossed. It all gets here and gets installed uh, by September 1st. We're thinking that it will. Uh, it's going to be really exciting. It'll be a, be a fun space to uh, have Sunday school and women's Bible study and mops and uh, our men's, uh, men's uh, Saturday morning breakfast. Um, lots of other things, I think, will uh, we'll start to take place in that room. Uh, we're going to start to have some good coffee in there. That's going to be fun. Uh, we're in the middle of looking for a new associate pastor to lead our, our youth and our children's and our worship ministries. Uh, and most important of all, Jesus Christ is at work in us by his spirit uh, to transform us into his holy people and to make us blameless before God. Amen? That is the most exciting thing of all that is happening. And I see that happening in so many of you as you seek the Lord and as you uh, trust in him. Uh, one of the steps of discipleship that's important for everybody to take, if you've never done this, this is really important specifically for you, is Jesus commands us to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, to give public testimony of what Christ has done in our lives uh, through baptism. And what baptism is about is, that, first of all, it symbolizes a couple of things. First of all, it symbolizes the idea of a ritual bath by which your sins are symbolically washed away and you, are, you come up out of the water clean. That's part of the idea, that when a person places their trust in Christ, their sins are removed from them and they are made clean before God and they, they have right standing before God. They're, to use the biblical term, justified before God. And it's as if... Uh, they stand before God innocent and holy. And baptism symbolizes that, that idea that when Christ comes into your life, you are cleansed from sin and you are made holy before God. It also symbolizes this idea that Paul talks about also in Romans, the idea that when Christ died, we who have trusted in him are in a sense buried with him with our sin nature, that our sins were crucified and dead and buried with Jesus, and that when Jesus was raised, that we also are raised to new life. So you have this idea of burial and resurrection, that our old man, our old sin nature is buried with Jesus in his death, and then when Christ is raised, we are raised to glorious new life just as he is. 
And if you've never been baptized, uh, we've got a couple of folks who have already committed to doing that. Talk to them. And they're, they're on for that day on the 29th. If you would like to do that and give public testimony of your faith in Christ and of the cleansing Christ has brought to you, uh, I'd encourage you to do this. This is important. This is not only important, this is commanded by Jesus. And uh, something that you need to obey and to, and to do as part of your growth in Christ as well. So for the rest of us, those who have who have uh, trusted in Christ and who have been baptized, um, plan on coming to celebrate with your brothers and sisters as they are baptized. Plan on bringing two dishes to share for the potluck. The service will be here. Then we'll head out to Great Oaks uh, that Sunday afternoon to eat together, to hear testimony of Christ's powerful work in people's lives, and then they'll be baptized in the pond, and it'll be great. It really will. It's exciting every time I do it. I've baptized about 25 people here in the church here, and and it's exciting every single time, and it's so much fun. Someday we'll get a baptismal tank in here, um, but until then, we do this annually outside in the pond. It's fantastic, and it really, it really is a, a wonderful step of obedience. I remember the day that I got baptized, I cried. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not a crier. I'm not one of those real sensitive kind of dudes, you know. Um, I don't moisturize or anything, but I. <laughs> I. Uh, <laughs> it makes it hard to grip your tackle box that way. Uh, but anyway, um, it, it it's an emotional experience. It really is uh, when you realize all that Christ has done for you, and all that. Um, all that that means, that Jesus Christ has saved you from sin and hell and death and brought you into his family. Uh, and you're giving public testimony of that before your brothers and sisters. It's a great thing. Um, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. And on your way there, I just want to tell you a story about one of the scariest episodes uh, in our family's life. Happened to my son Nathan. Uh, when he was about four or five months old, we noticed he had a spot on his temple right here. If you look at him closely, you can still see the scar. But this little spot, this tumor, was growing on the side of his head. And we could see this doesn't look right. And we took him to the doctor, and he said, Well, it is a tumor, probably benign. But. You need to get it checked out, and then after that, you need to get it removed. And you need to wait until he's about six months old to have the surgery so he can handle general anesthesia and all this. And here's this little guy, and he's so he was so tiny, and you know, we're watching all these scans happen, and they're strapping him in, and he's screaming, and it's awful. It's absolutely awful. And we've got to take him, when he turns six months old, off we go to the pediatric neurosurgeon. There shouldn't, in, in a rightly ordered world, those people should not exist. One of the reasons I know that the world is deeply affected by sin is the existence of the pediatric neurosurgeon. And we took him down, and he's going in for surgery, and 
and all we can do, this is our youngest boy. This is our little, he, if, I, if he hears me tell this story, he, he'll yell at me when I say my baby. This is my baby, my little son. And all we can do is put him in the doctor's hands and pray. All we, all we can do. Um, and we say, Lord, you know what this is. You know what the outcome of this surgery will be. We pray for him to come through the surgery. We pray the tumor is benign. We pray this heals. We, but we put him in your hands. And at moments like that, you realize how little control over life you really have. You know, a lot of times you kind of perpetuate in your own life the illusion that you have a high degree of control because, after all, you're a gifted person, you have intelligence, you have skills, you have money, you have uh, American citizenship, you know, you have all these advantages from a worldly perspective. But at moments like that, you realize how really, really small and weak and powerless you really are. And you just drop to your knees and pray. And you pray that God's mercy and grace steps in. And I'm happy to report that he did step in by mercy and grace in our case. Our little guy came out of the surgery fine. If I never have to go back to a pediatric hospital like that, it will be a blessing to my life. Because you see all these other little kids in there. They've got all kinds of stuff going on with them, and there's our little guy, and terrible. Uh, the tumor would turn out to be benign, and the only lasting impacts were a, a permanent scar on the side of his head. But the other lasting effect was this, that Karen and I learned one more time what it is to trust God in a situation where there are no guarantees. And that really is what today's passage is all about. It's about learning to trust God when there's no guarantee of the outcome. When you don't know what's going to happen and you really don't have any control or really even any power over the outcome and you just have to fling yourself on the mercy of God and say, help. This is too big for me. This is beyond my ability to control Anything that I could do would probably mess this up. God help. And seeing God deliver and seeing him step in by grace and by mercy deliver. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis 32. We're going to look, beginning in verse 1, we're going to look at the whole chapter together. But I'll just read a section of it to start with. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Machaniam. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, 
If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Now, here's the situation. If you don't remember or you weren't here, uh, here's the deal. When Jacob left home the first time, he was running for his life because he had skinned his brother Esau out of his, his blessing, which was the right of the firstborn to receive the blessing of the father and the, the, the larger share of what belonged to the father came through that blessing. And Jacob had dressed up, pretended to be his brother, deceived his father, cheated his brother, and his brother, on learning of this, is consoling himself with the thought of killing him. Well, wait till the old man dies, and then he will get yours, pal. And so Jacob has had to run off to Paddan uh, Aram to, um, to live with his uncle Laban. He's found not just a wife, but four wives there, uh, two legitimate wives, two and and he has uh, wrestled around with Laban for 20 years until finally he's had to sneak out away from Laban's house in the middle of the night. Laban pursues him, catches up to him, and last week we saw they made a peace treaty. It involved some rocks, and basically the idea was, you stay on your side of the rocks and I'll stay on my side, but if you cross over to my side, watch your back. That's the treaty, essentially. So he can't go back that way, and he's heading home. And God has told him, you should head home. So he sends messengers ahead to Esau, and he thinks, well, we'll hopefully be able to patch things up with Esau before I get home. It would be a good idea. And he gets back, he sends off messengers to tell Esau, hey, 
I'm on the way home. I'm coming your way. And the messengers come back to tell him, oh, Esau's on the way to meet you. And by the way, he has 400 guys with him. These men are not stated in the text, but it's more or less assumed, understood, implied that these men are all armed when they're coming. Esau is not just coming with, you know, an entourage. This isn't the, this isn't the Kardashians. Uh, this is like an army. This is, this is Esau and his armed men who are coming out to meet Jacob. Now, if you could get worse news, this is pretty much as bad as it could be. I mean, you could have it be worse. You know, he could have a thousand guys. But he already outnumbers Jacob and his whole group ten to one. And most of Jacob's group are kids and women. And all of a sudden, Jacob is very, very, very afraid. Don't know what's going on. We will fix that. Um, what you need here, in other words, is not a, a really good tactician. You don't need a good strategy for how you're going to win. You need deliverance. Because there's no way this is coming out good for you. And you need to figure out a way to make peace while the army is still a long way off. And that's what Jacob decides to do. He is at a place that he has named Machanayim, which means two camps. And he originally named the place Machanayim because he was camped there, and then he saw the angels of God, and he realized that while he was camped there, God was camped there too. And that God had been with him while he made his treaty with Laban. And that's a good thing. And he realizes, hey, maybe God is trying to tell me something. He had two camps, you know, his and mine. Well, maybe if I divide mine into two camps, then part of it will survive. Maybe my entire family won't be destroyed. I'll divide half the family on one and stuff on one side and half on the other. And that way, if we get attacked, maybe while one group is busy, the other can escape. And he does that, and he also does something else that's really good. Pray. Look, and I want you to see his prayer here. It starts in verse 9. O Lord, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. Cannot be numbered for multitude. Look at how he prays here. 
This is, by the way, this is the first recorded instance of Jacob praying in his whole story. He starts off, this is the first time he does something worth imitating in his whole story also. He prays. He starts off reminding God, look, you are the covenant-making God. You're the God who made covenant with Abraham, my grandfather. You're the covenant who ma- God who made covenant with Isaac, my dad. You're the God who made that same covenant with me. You're the covenant-making God. And he reminds God also, look, I'm obeying your word. Remember? You're the one who told me to go home. This is not turning out well. But I'm obeying you. That's why I'm in this mess. He says, and then he says, look, he says, look here. And I can see that you have been faithful to me all this time. I can finally see it because I remember the fact that I, when I crossed the Jordan River over to get to this place, I only had the stick in my hand and the clothes on my back. And now look at all this stuff. I have, I have family. I have, hey, Mansion, you got All right, how how about this? Is this better? All right, we'll go with that. He says, look, God, you've been incredibly faithful to me. You've been incredibly gracious to me. I I had nothing, and in 20 years, look at all that I have. And he uses actually a special term. He talks about God's steadfast love, and it's, it's the Hebrew word hesed. And it's, the, it's, a, it's a word that doesn't translate well in English, but it's this idea that God has been loyal, He has been faithful, and He has been uh, completely trustworthy in His love. And it's all, often translated His steadfast love, His loyal love, His covenant-making love, that God has kept His promises, that God has lived up to His word. He says, you have showed me hesed. Your steadfast love to me all this time. And and now I really need it again. Because Esau's coming. And I'm afraid. By the way, is that okay to do? Is it okay to admit to the Lord where you're really at? I would say it's not only okay, it's biblical. You know, a lot of times people, when they pray, they want God to somehow be impressed with their spirituality, and so they kind of start going into another realm of vocabulary that they get into. You know, maybe you've heard this, where like a guy who talks maybe a little more like me in a normal basis, when he prays, he goes, oh, God, you know, <laughs> and, you know, he gets some vibrato in his voice, and he starts using thee and thou and thou, you know, and whatever, and it gets really weird, right? And and the guy is not willing to be really honest about where he's coming from. And he isn't willing to say to God, God, I'm afraid. God, my situation that I'm in stinks. 
I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I hate it. My life is at risk. Uh, this is bad scene. I need deliverance. But you know what? If you read the Psalms, that's that kind of honesty is exactly what you'll find. And it's what God actually commends. Because you know what? He knows where we are anyway. So you just as well tell him. And Jacob is really honest. God, Esau is coming and I'm afraid. Because I know that if there's a just if there's justice in the world, I deserve whatever Esau's gonna dish out. And I'm afraid, and I need deliverance. And I'm afraid that me and my whole family, the mothers and the children, are gonna be destroyed. And then he concludes with this. He says, But you promised me. In spite of everything else, you promised me that you were going to bless me. You promised me descendants like the sand on the seashore. And if we all get destroyed, I don't know how that promise gets kept. And he's trusting God for the first time in his life. And it's a good thing. And after he prays, he sends a peace offering. He actually sends a massive one. He sends 550 animals, not counting the calves of the camels that he sends. And he separates them all by little little bits, and he sends a servant with each little group, and they walk behind, and each one gets the same message. This is a gift for Esau, my Lord, and Jacob is coming soon. And he's hoping that that will be a sufficiently large gift to ensure that Esau comes in peace. And all these animals cross over the Jabbok River from Gilead into the region east of the Jordan that's later going to uh, be part of Esau's possession. Let's read on. The same night he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day, and when the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen the face, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life was, has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because it touched because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So after the servants and, and the peace offering crossed the ford, Jacob sends his wives and his family and the rest of his possessions over the Jabbok also. And Jacob is all alone on the other side of the river by himself. I don't know if you've ever been out in the, you know, out outside out away from civilization. I'm not like talking about like you're at a campground. I'm talking about a wilderness area <laughs> where there aren't any people and there aren't any lights 
and you're a long way from everywhere. You know what I'm talking about? And you're and then not only are you out a ways, but it starts to get dark. And all of a sudden you're all by yourself. That can get pretty spooky. Particularly it can get spooky if you're in an area where there are predatory animals that live. And at this time in in the Middle East's history, there are still things like hyenas, lions, Asiatic bears. They're all running around out there. And here you are all alone with your little fire by yourself. And on top of that, there's no rule of law. It isn't like, you know, this, there's cops walking the street. You know, the rule of law is whatever you can establish with your biceps and sword. And you know that the next day, or maybe the day after, that Esau and his army are getting there, and you're going to be attacked. Or at least you think that's what's going to happen. And so there you are, sitting along the, by the, along by the river with your little fire. And out of nowhere, a man comes and jumps you in the dark. Your worst nightmare just came true. And this is not, by the way... I don't think we, you know, I think we picture, you know, something sort of civilized, you know, like maybe college, you know, NCAA wrestling, you know, like, oh, well, I got him pinned now. No, no. It isn't like that. And it for sure is not fake as a $3 bill WWE style wrestling, okay, you know, where we make noise with our feet, you know, and that's supposed to, like, really impact the guy or something, okay? No, no. This is for real, for serious wrestling for your life. Trying to choke one another to death, wrestling. And it goes on all night long. And then when the morning comes, this mysterious man reaches over and just touches Jacob. And all of a sudden, his hip goes out of joint. And Jacob realizes there's something about this wrestler that's different than anybody else he's ever encountered. That he's actually been wrestling not with a man, but with God himself, who has revealed himself in a in a, in a way that is very unusual, certainly. I think it's the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who is there. In other words, before Jesus came as, before the Son of God came as Jesus Christ of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, he was pre-existent. And he existed before, from eternity past. He always was there. And so when you see an appearance of God in the Old Testament, you're seeing the second person of the Trinity. And it's he who is wrestling with Jacob. And Jacob all of a sudden realizes it. But he won't let go. Even though he's crippled. By the way, the, the tendons that you have in your hip here are the strongest ones in your body. They're the ones that really enable you to walk. And now Jacob, he's about to be attacked 
by his brother Esau, he thinks, the next day. He's wrestled all night with this man who turns out to be God, and now he can't walk. He can't run. He limps when he walks, but he still won't let go of the divine wrestler. And this man says to Jacob, God says to Jacob, let me go. It's daytime. Let me go. And Jacob says, well, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Not going to let you go until you bless me. And in response, it's, God's response is really interesting. He says, well, tell me your name. Tell me your name. Why do you think he asks his name? I mean, if this is really God in the flesh appearing in front of Jacob, you think he didn't know? Like, you think he was curious? Huh, I wonder who this random guy is I jumped in the dark. No. God's not confused about who this is. I think he asks because he wants Jacob to acknowledge who he is. Remember, last time he and Esau were together, he pretended to be Esau. And Jacob has spent his entire life trying to get what rightfully belonged to his older brother. And then on top of that, he has spent the last 20 years living up to his name, Jacob, the one who catches from behind, the one who grabs the heel to trip somebody else up. He's been living up to his name with his uncle Laban to such a point, such a degree, even though Laban richly deserved it, that he and Laban can't even be in the same room together without fighting. And he says, tell me your name. In other words, who are you? Are you the person who has been doing all that you've been doing for your whole life? What's your name? He says, I'm Jacob. I'm Jacob. I am that guy. I'm the guy who is always trying to tilt the table his direction. I'm the guy who is always looking for some advantage. And if we're in a race, I'm not above sticking a leg out and tripping you. I'm that guy. And God says, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you a new name. And he gives him a great name. He gives him a name, I think, with a a dual meaning, the name Israel. It means, on the one hand, it can be understood as he fights with God. And I think it's a reminder to Jacob that in living up to his name, he's not just fighting against people, he's fighting really against God. And this little encounter in the night was just meant to underline that fact, that all this time, Jacob, as you've been fighting You've been fighting not simply against your brother, against your father, against your uncle. You've been fighting me. Just like you did tonight. But it also can mean God fights. Which I think is meant to remind Jacob that God is there, that God is with him. And that God, if he trusts him, will fight his battles for him. 
And then God does bless him. And he sends him off limping. And Jacob names the place Peniel. And the word uh, Penuel that's there later is uh, a variant spelling of that same idea. But the but the what it means is face of God. That he saw God face to face, and yet he didn't die. Instead, he was delivered. And he knows, having seen God face to face, that he is going to be delivered on the following day. If Jacob trusts, God is going to step in, and God is going to fight his battles for him so that he can stop fighting with God and start letting God fight for him. So, what about us? That's the end of Genesis 32. You think these, this passage might have some things to teach us? I think it does. I think it does. Here's three things that we can learn from this passage. Number one, you can pray God's promises, just like Jacob does. Um, I, I will just be honest with you here. Um, I find it difficult to pray sometimes. I'm a pastor. I get paid to pray part of the time. But on a personal basis, I find it sometimes difficult to pray. But one of the things that I figured out that makes prayer easier is that you can actually pray God's word back to him. That God not only asks us to pray, he gives us words to use when we pray. And so as an example, you can do this. Uh, If you have been adopted by God's grace through faith, trusting in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and in his resurrection to bring you into new life, you can do things like this. You can pray John 3.16. You can pray Acts 16.31. You can pray Romans 5.8. You can pray Ephesians 2.8-10. And you can pray and you can thank God who loved you, who sent his son for you, though you were a rebel against him, and that he brought you into his family. If you've never done that, you can still pray those, only asking God to do that for you. If, as an example, you're asking God to forgive your sin, you can pray first, you can pray first John 1 9, which says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you can say, Father, this is the sin, fill in the blank, that I have done today, last week, last month, last year, and I've never confessed it before, but you promise us that if you can that if we will confess to you and acknowledge our sin before you, that you will forgive us and cleanse us. And I need forgiveness and cleansing. See? Uh, here's another one, okay? You can go through your Bible, and as you read specific commands, and there are a lot of them, you know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How many of you all find that easy to do? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, okay. I personally... Find that difficult, not because she is difficult to love, but because I am just not that loving. I am not that self-sacrificial on a natural basis. How about this one? Wives, submit yourselves, therefore, to your own husbands as to the Lord. How many of you find that easy to do? Okay. 
Well, one of you, okay? Mark, you are a blessed man. <laughs> okay? Uh, <laughs> a lot of you find that challenging, right? But guess what? When you come to a command like that and you go, you know what? I can't do that. Guess what you can do? You can pray and you can ask the Lord and you can say, God, I don't have a marriage that looks like this. I don't know how to obey this. I need help. And you command me to do this, and you've given me your Holy Spirit to enable me to do it, but I am troubling trouble here. Help me. And God will be faithful, and he will help. If you're depressed, you can read Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is written by a guy who's depressed, who is really struggling, who says to the Lord, essentially, he gives the image of a drowning man. He says, God, the water is up to my neck. I am sinking in the deep where there is no foothold to be found anywhere. And my eyes are worn out from looking for you. And my voice is hoarse from calling your name. And I don't see you on the horizon coming to the rescue. And, and if that's how you feel, you can say that to God. And you can know that he not only hears, but as you pray the rest of the psalm, that God is going to come through for you like he did for the psalmist. And that he is going to make himself known, that he is going to reveal himself, that he is going to answer when you call, that he is going to appear before your eyes in a way that is going to give you comfort and encouragement. See what I'm saying? Just like Jacob, you can pray the Scripture back to the Lord. If it's a command, pray for help to obey. If it's an expression of how you feel, pray that. Say, God, this is me. If it's a, a promise that God has made to you, claim that. Say, God, you promised me you would do this. And I'm trusting you to live up to your word. You can also uh, learn this from this passage. Uh, number one, I, I had a good friend, a um, good South Georgia boy, that taught me to do a quiet time. And one of the things he used to say, and he gets it from this passage, is that you can't box God. Your arms are too short to reach him, and your punches don't hurt him. Okay? Uh, the reality of it is Jacob thinks that he can box God. He has thought that his whole life. He thinks that all of a sudden that somehow he's going to somehow work life to his advantage and that by his own effort it's going to come out for his benefit. And God has to show him and actually physically hurt him to show him. Jacob, I'm bigger than you. And if you trust me, I will fight for you. But if you are an arrogant, prideful, selfish, cheating, lying man, I'm going to fight against you. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And there's a lot of us, I think, that, that we, we do everything but pray because we, we think that we are so smart, we are so gifted, we are so wise, we are so talented, we got so much together that... Somehow we don't need the Lord until it's really desperate, and then we call on him. 
God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. He gives grace. He steps in. He delivers after we have tried, after we have given up trying to get everything by our own steam and under our own power. And when we're really dependent on him, then he provides. Last thing, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Trust Him when it's summertime and the living is easy, the cotton is high, the catfish are jumping, your daddy's rich and your mama's good looking. You know that? Okay. Trust Him then. Trust Him when it's wintertime, when everything is dead, and when everything does not go your way. And when it's totally desperate, and the only hope you have is that God will deliver, trust Him then too. Trust Him because He is trustworthy. Trust Him because He has shown His steadfast love to you over and over, just like He did Jacob. Trust Him to reveal His covenant love to you one more time. Trust the Lord, no matter the circumstances. Trust the Lord. Trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are indeed a God who fights for those He loves. A God who, when we do trust in You, when we do place our dependence on You, when we act as though there is no other option, and even when there is no other option, you are still gracious. Whether we come to you out of desperation or come to you out of faith, Father, you are still gracious when we come to you to deliver, to supply our needs, to meet us where we are in our fear, in our desperation, in our depression, in our happy days. Father, whatever circumstances we come to you, you are happy to have us come. And Father, we pray that we would trust you no matter. That no matter what happens, we would trust you because you are fully trustworthy. You have revealed your steadfast, holy love to us in countless ways over countless days. And Father, we pray that we would trust you and see you deliver in all our circumstances, and give you praise when we see it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.